All right, well, let's continue in our series in Luke's gospel. We're calling this Certain Truth. And part 13 today, we're talking about life beyond the grave. When I was young, it seemed that um, people, at least people in church, talked a lot more about heaven and hell than we do today. That seemed to be more common. And heaven sounded okay, I guess. Uh, to a young person, I thought more of the, you know, cream, Philadelphia cream cheese floating cloud and a strumming harp in it. It just didn't sound all that exciting. But hell sounded terrifying. Uh, you know, a burning lake of fire for all time. And so, obviously, heaven was the way to go. Uh, but it always left this sort of unspoken impression that it's not that great. I mean, it's good, better than the alternative for sure, but um, I don't know, that's what you chose. But it, it left you feeling like you best get as much out of this life as you can. You know, um, experience all you can now because, well, when you get to heaven, you know, the old bucket list thing. I mean, I've said this before, you know, one of the one of the things I say, everybody, you know, when friends come to visit, they say, oh, man, in your lifetime, you've got to go see the big trees. You know, and if you get a chance to go see the Grand Canyon, you've got to do that. I don't think you're going to, you know, meet Jesus and say, Jesus, there's just I have a regret. I didn't get to see the Grand Canyon. You know, you're going to be like, oh, never mind all that. Right. So I as an adult, I realized that my eternal heavenly home is far beyond even the grandest attempt at a description and I know that heaven is for real. See, I believe in the reality of heaven, not because of the testimony of the five-year-old boy, Colton Burpo, right? The subject of the book and the movie. Remember that? Heaven is for real. I believe in the reality of heaven and hell because Jesus talked about them both. Jesus spoke of these places not as a figurative concept, not as a philosophy, but as, as actual places where we go in a bodily form. Not as floating Bodiless souls, real bodies in real places, in real time, without an end to that time. The passage we're looking at today recounts one of those eternal glimpses that Jesus had. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, starting at verses 19. So while you're finding that, maybe I'll just add, you know, one of the questions people ask me sometimes is, well, why don't we ever talk about, you know, heaven and hell? And the reason why we don't um, really deal with that a whole lot is because sometimes we're left with the impression that God is trying to send people to hell. That's how often the world thinks about that. And we forget that God is all in the business of welcoming people to heaven, seeking out that people would be saved and have a knowledge of the truth. But if you found Luke 16, 19 through 21, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. follows the passage we read last week about the shrewd manager says this verse 19 there was a certain rich man this is jesus speaking a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen we could say he wore armani suits and he lived in luxury each day at his gate lay a poor man named lazarus who was covered with sores As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps in the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Verse 22. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. 
And the rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. Yours might say Hades. There in torment, he saw Abram in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Verse 24, the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. And Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, well, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. I have five brothers and I want them to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. Verse 30 The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Thank the Lord for his word today. Let's be seated. There are some scholars who love to debate whether this story is simply a parable Simply a fictional story or a telling of actual events. And our purpose today isn't to figure out the literature of of this passage. We're here to see what the story reveals about God's good news and God's love for the whole world. The fact that God wants to save the whole world. Personally, I would just I would add, I think the detail in the story does lead me to believe that it's a somewhat stylized but true account certainly supports the wider scriptural teaching that heaven and hell are permanent places that cannot be crossed from one to the other. Hell is a place of torment and heaven the eternal destination of the believer. Jesus did tell the story leaning hard into a Jewish perspective on this. It's it's very Jewish that Abraham is a key figure in this passage considered you know, the father of the Jewish nation. And so in their perspective, there's that sense of Father Abraham welcomes the faithful home. In the Old Testament, we often read that, or we'll read that, you know, upon someone's death, it says it'll say they rested with their fathers or they were gathered to their fathers. It's very much that sense. For the the godly, death is seen as, as a place of rest and reward and reunion. It's a kind of a blessed time experience what we do see for certain is that once we leave this life our eternal station is permanent we're given all of this life to choose for all of the next life now occasionally i'm asked about reincarnation because that's a kind of an appealing doctrine theology philosophy whatever you want to call it in the eastern mindset could it be real what does the bible have to say about it um, here's what the Bible has to say about it in Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. The Bible, in case you're ever in a conversation with somebody, the Bible has no, no option. There's no category for something like a reincarnate experience. 
It's true that Jesus portrayed the two main characters in the story in the extremes. You have the poor man, Lazarus, right? Now, just to be clear, this is not the same Lazarus that we read that Jesus raised from the dead. You can read that in John chapter 11, different, different person, same name, right? This Lazarus is desperately poor and miserable. I mean, so bad off that, I mean, he's just, um, you know, he's practically lying in some kind of garbage stompers. I mean, he's covered with sores. He's infected. The, I mean, he's so low on the totem pole of life that the dogs come and lick on him. I mean, it's just disgusting, right? It's just a horrible picture. This is an awful picture. And then you've got the rich man. In tradition, this man is called Dives. comes from the Latin translation. Um, it's kind of they derive that name for him, but he's really not named in the story. And he lives in this lavish opulence and comfort. He's just, he lives the good life. And that the two could not be more opposite. And yet they live side by side. Those of you who have traveled, you've sometimes seen this in a, in a third world country where you'll have a, a, just a beautiful kind of a, almost like a mansion of some kind with gates and fences. And then there'll be like some little shanty shack, you know, shacks up alongside the, the, the wall of some great mansion. Homeless people find it probably the easiest to find food in the alleys next to the wealthiest restaurants. So you see that contrast even today. And in the context of the story, people would have admired the rich man. Right? As we do today. We, they would have seen him as successful, blessed by God, obviously. I mean, look at him. He's blessed. And as we so often do with the sick and homeless, they, they would have looked down on poor Lazarus as a human failure, as a wasted life. But the story reveals the profound truth for us that there's more to people than meets the eye. There's more to people than meets the eye. In other words, what we see and admire or despise right, about someone does not tell their whole story. I told someone this this past week, I said, I think one of the, the toughest life lessons to learn, and I'm still working on it, is never trust a first impression can't tell you how many times I've been wrong. My first impression. I, where we um, lived in Canada, we, um, we were on this kind of nice little street, overlooked a little bit of a valley and stuff. And I remember one day looking out, my, out the front window and, and on the, the street below, there was, there was um, you know, an older gentleman walking along. And we, our next door neighbor had this really annoying dog named Taco. Man. Taco really did get taken to the farm eventually and put out of his, everyone else's misery because he, he would bite people and stuff. Anyway, so this man was walking with his cane and Taco was there nipping at his feet and just being really annoying. And I, I looked at this. I'm like, ah, oh, what should I do? How do I help him? And finally the dog left him and but I, I saw that man, I just thought, boy, he's kind of a strange looking guy. Like, that's just kind of odd. I knew he lived, I don't know, four or five doors down, but I had a pretty, I'll admit, ungodly attitude. I just thought, well, wouldn't you know this guy starts coming to our church? And, um, and uh, started attending one of the small groups in our church and 
and uh, one of our staff, she, she, was, she and her husband were leading that small group. And she said, hey, have you met this guy, Len? Been coming to our church. He's in our small group. It's kind of an amazing story. I'm like, I, I, think I, I think I know who you're talking about. He's on my street. Like, I, I don't know. He says, you should get to know him. Turns out, many years earlier, this man had moved to a remote jungle tribe in the Philippines to a headhunting people and starting with nothing, learned a challenging language, developed a dictionary, developed a writing system, translated the entire New Testament for them. Um, Something like 60,000 people got saved because of that Bible translation. It's an amazing story, I'll tell you sometime. When he was done that, in the process, his wife um, died of cancer, came back to Canada, went back, remarried, went back to a totally different region of the Philippines, started all over again with an unrelated language, and got so far as the, the dictionary and the writing system before he retired. I ended up getting to travel with him and spend quite a bit of time with him, and he became like a dear uncle to me. Never trust the first impression. You don't know what's going on. In this story that Jesus tells, there, there may be a temptation for some to say, it's better to be poor than rich. God loves poor people more than rich people. Or, well, rich people are, are they're going to go to hell. And poor people, they're all going to go to heaven. That's not what this story says. That's not the message of the story. The rich man, yes, he was a jerk. But he wasn't a jerk because he was rich. He was a jerk because he rejected God's word in spite of the wealth that God had allowed him to earn and to enjoy. No good Jewish man would have been able to ignore the explicit commands of Scripture to care for the poor, to help those in need. But the rich man would also have accepted the common belief at that time that wealth is God's blessing and poverty and suffering. Well, that's a consequence of sin. And often sin does lead to poverty and suffering. But, you know, sin can also lead to some people being wildly rich. So that's not a that doesn't make sense. That doesn't work either. The rich rich man may well have thought, well, Lazarus is getting what he deserves. He's just a wicked sinner. He's cursed by God. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to mess up God's judgment. That's speculation. What we do know is he didn't help him. He did not help him, even though he had the means and the opportunity every single day. And he did nothing. Maybe it'd be worth pausing here to debunk a common cultural myth, the lie that claims, well, I deserve to be happy. Or, you know, it's similar to you deserve a break today. Right? I've heard that selfish mantra so many times. Why do we say that? Why do we? What's the basis? On what basis can I say, well, I deserve to be happy? Did you somehow earn that? Is it somehow your good looks that just have earned you the status of happiness? Why would we say that? The rich man lived that philosophy. Well, what about Lazarus? What does he deserve? Here's the bottom line. Life is short. And it won't be until eternity that we see God's justice worked out. This story reminds us today that God can be trusted for ultimate justice. We've talked about this before. Now, it's an easy statement to make. 
God can be trusted for ultimate justice. That's an easy statement to make when life is going good, right? When, when things are smooth, when life is easy, when we're comfortable. But it's a huge step of faith to actually agree with that, to say, yep, I trust God for justice. This week I had a chance to speak to a, a person, she, a lady from India, and she was a, a former Hindu and she's a religious seeker and she was asking some pretty important questions and she's really struggling with this issue of justice and, and suffering and couldn't understand how could a, you know, a real God allow for, for these terrible things to happen in the world. She brought up that horrific Indian news story. I don't know if you remember it back from 2012 when a 23-year-old girl was, was attacked and beaten by six men on a bus and she eventually died from her injuries. This gal, she said to me, there was no help from your Jesus. There was no help from the gods. Where was your Jesus when that woman cried out for help? I'm sure she cried out for help. Pretty sobering question. Who of us hasn't wondered the same thing? God, where were you? God, why didn't you answer that prayer? God, why haven't you heard me? God, why haven't you resolved this circumstance? Oh, in that case, you could argue that that assault was necessary to expose crime and corruption in that Indian city, that her, her death led to the passing of better laws, that, that the free will we have to do right demands that we have the free will to do what is evil. But imagine that that's your sister or your daughter or your friend, and suddenly there's no satisfactory answer, is there? For what she suffered and the loss her loved ones continue to grieve. We could go on and talk about the Christians today in Iraq and Syria and Libya and everywhere else who are suffering unspeakably right now, right today, at the hands of evil people. Hey, we would do well to remember members of your own family, members of our own church family who who have been lost to illness or malpractice or automobile accidents or some some tragic Circumstance. This really is heaven's hope that this life, whether one day or more than a hundred years, is a breath. Our forever future is our real life. Psalm 1611 goes so far as to say that there are eternal pleasures. Pleasures. The Bible uses that word, pleasures. Eternal, forever pleasures in God's presence. It's going to be good. Justice will be served. There's no need to keep clinging on and clinging on and to life here. Then there's much to look forward to. But it's still hard. There's some good news in this story, too, though. And namely this, that God has expressed the desire for all to be saved. God has expressed the desire for all to be saved. We sometimes miss that salvation is God's idea. It's God who sent His Son, Jesus, to be the Savior for all who will trust Him. First Timothy Chapter 2, verse 4 says that it's God our Savior who wants all to be saved and understand the truth. That's God's will. What's God's will? God's will is that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's good having you here, Sam. Thank you. I missed that. 
Somebody else was supposed to pick up on that one. Sam, Sam moved away. So where do we see that in this story? Well, look at verse 25 with me. Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being comforted and you're in anguish. That both speaks to the justice piece, the eternal justice piece, but it also gives us a little glimpse. I don't know if you saw the tender way in which Abraham addressed the rich man. Do you see that? Son. He says, it's not amazing. Even when the man is beyond the reach of salvation, Abraham, who in figurative terms, in this, the way the story is told, in figurative terms, speaks for God. Right? Abraham still calls him son. His love, the love of God continues on even, even now that he's beyond the reach of God. God loves even the most hard-hearted jerk and desires that all of us would put our faith in Christ. The purpose of that faith is not simply a ticket to heaven. Okay, I got my ticket, now I can just do what I want. But it's to know God, to welcome His love into your life, to be able to say, God loves me, as I was saying earlier. God loves me, and because of that, I'm going to live God's way. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, we just sang. But some will not submit. Some people remain arrogant and selfish right to the end and beyond. Did you notice in the story that even from hell, the rich man still expected Lazarus to serve him? Abraham, can you get, you know, Lazarus there to bring me some relief? No, can't do that. The chasm is uncrossable. We can't go from there, from here to there, and you can't go from there to here. It's it's beyond. Oh, well, then have him, you know, send him to my brothers. Have him take a message to my brothers. Yeah, he's showing some concern for his brothers. But honestly, that rich man, even there, is still unrepentant and arrogant and entitled. And yet God loves him. And Abraham points out the truth that the evidence for faith is available. It's in God's word. And God's word says the evidence for God is all around us in what's been made. In fact, it's even been imprinted on our hearts. You might be a person today who's really is just struggling. Is the Bible really true? And is God really out there? And can I really believe all this stuff? Isn't this just a nice myth to make you feel better about your life? And you've made up some rosy picture of some heaven. But man, when you die, you're done. It's just over. And yet you know in your heart that's not true. When you get honest with yourself in that, that moment, that deeply personal moment, you know, no, there's more. God's imprinted that on your heart. The French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal has been quoted countless times that God has created a, there's a God-shaped hole inside of each person. And you know it. And your friends know that. You might not be ready to admit it yet, might not be ready to talk about it, might not be even aware of it yet, but they know it. And if what God has already given is not enough for you, even someone rising from the dead, Abraham says, is not going to be convincing. And that, of course, is Jesus is now foreshadowing his own death and resurrection and, and just saying, look, his resurrection is not a stunt. The resurrection of Jesus is not a stunt 
to get you to believe. Ta-da! Wow. Okay. Yeah, now I'm now I'm convinced. It proves who he is. But it will not convince the stubborn heart. Once you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit of God within you reminds you how to live for God. Once you put your faith in Christ, it's the Spirit of God that reminds you then how to live. Now, maybe the rich man assumed it was someone else's job to help poor Lazarus. He saw him every day. He had showed no apparent concern for Lazarus's well-being. Turns out he appears from the story that he knew his, his name. He says, you know, he recognizes him. He looks, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus to bring me some relief. So he, he recognizes him. He, he seems to know his name. But he doesn't seem to care about him. Perhaps like me and so many of us in the city of rich and very poor people, Fresno. Maybe he found ways to avoid seeing the poverty right there at his doorstep. I really did not intend for us to receive multiple messages on stewardship in this series in Luke's gospel, but it's where Scripture is taking us. And I've been looking ahead, and and there's going to be more, I'll warn you right now. My job is not to tell you what to do. I'm here to open the Word with you, and we're going to listen together to what God has to say and maybe ask some questions. So I'm going to finish with a question which is applicable to most of us in this room, how will I use my resources to benefit others? (laughs) I was talking with a friend a couple days ago who has come through some pretty miraculous, life-changing events in the last few weeks. He said, yeah, he says, "I'm I'm just so grateful. I just love God and I just love my church and I'm just praying that God will... God, let me win the lottery because I just want to give money to the church. I said, well, friend, I won't tell you his name. I said, God doesn't need the lottery for you to be generous. It's not, it's not how much. It's not the amount. It's the attitude and the expression of the heart that comes through in generosity. How will I use my resources to benefit others? This is not a story to advocate wealth redistribution. Right? Money is not evil. And the rich man was not condemned by his wealth. His lack of action condemned him. And his lack of action was the, was the fruit of a lack of submission to God. Okay? It's not his wealth that condemned him. His, his inaction condemned him. And that came because he had not put his faith in God, they had not submitted to Jesus as Lord, as we would say today. The fact that he had wealth enabled him to either ignore God or to serve God. And by that means, if most of us in this room are comfortable enough with the resources that we have, that we could we could just say, I, I don't really need God. I'm I'm good. My vehicle works fine. I've got a house and food on the table. I'm I'm fine. Sometimes wealth enables us to ignore God. But wealth also enables us to serve God. Wow, there's somebody in need. There's some student going on a mission trip. Uh, hey, I can, I can participate. I can use what God's given me to help someone else and to be a blessing. 
to extend the kingdom. As long as we're stuck on lies like, I deserve to be happy, right? I deserve to be comfortable. I think we're going to find it impossible to respond the way Jesus would have us respond. And it applies to you and me as individuals, and it applies to our families, and it applies to our church. Will I sacrifice my preferences and comforts to benefit those who need help? How will I use my resources to benefit others? So there's so many of you in this room right now, you can say, man, this has been so fun. Here's, I, I did this, and it helped this, and I did this, and it, oh, it's been so great fun. We, we were invited to a banquet, and... Um, fundraising banquet recently and and uh it's kind of a funny story because we said okay we're this is our first experience we're just we're just going to go learn about this ministry and and while we're there we're like we can't just give the small token amount we were going to give let's let's do something more and so becky and i wrote the check i i got a letter this week these guys just raised some huge pile of money and a couple banquets and i'm just like oh i got to be a part of something really cool i wish i'd done more What's the Lord asking you to do? We are in a city that's surrounded by poverty. Infiltrated with poverty. One of the cool things we're involved with is a ministry called Dakota House. Where we bring a number of children and students to Bethany Church on Wednesday nights to participate in Awana and high school group. It's a, it's a really cool ministry. Um, we're just exploring what is our, what's going to be the future of our, our ministry with them. They're kind of in a little bit of flux. They're trying to figure out their, their direction. And we're just really prayerfully saying, Lord, what's our role? What's our role with the Dakota House? How can we be more of a blessing? Um, we've got high, some high school students that are going to be heading to the great city of Mendota. I tell you, I've seen that sign many times, the 180, Mendota. It makes you think it's just like, or you can go this way to Yosemite, or you can go this way to Mendota. It's a trap. Don't fall for it. I did go to Mendota once. Wow. Wow. And we have some high school students that are joining together with another church in our city, Mountain View Church. And they're going to go spend four days serving the poor, doing some youth camps and um, a variety of activities. Honestly, it's not that costly. It's 50 bucks. Maybe you don't have a, a youth student. And so you're going to go find Roy. Roy, wave your hand. Or Janice. Janice, wave your hand. Maybe you're going to find one of them and say, hey, I'll help, I'll help a student go to, to Mendota this week. Count on me for the 50 bucks. No problem. And uh, not very many of you guys have signed up. But you know what? You're probably going to play a bunch of video games next week. Or you can go do something really cool. It's not really a guilt trip, but it kind of is. <laughs> That's what it takes. But I think it's an awesome experience, an awesome opportunity to say, how about, we, how about we put into practice what we preach? The story of, of Lazarus and the rich man is a reminder that heaven is real. And so is the hideous suffering of hell. But our eternal destination is our choice. Get this. It's our choice, not God's choice. God is not going to choose for you. You get to choose for yourself. That's the good news. God has made it possible for you to choose to receive and submit to him or to reject him. 
God is in the business of saving all who will trust him and submit to him. And you might think, but I don't know enough yet. I don't understand enough yet. I don't, I don't have enough information. It's not clear enough. Here's all you need to know. God loves you and wants you to know him. What better news is there than that? And when you do that, he's an eternal, glorious future for you. Saved by God's grace through our faith. Not by our works, but here's the little catch on this. Those works are evidence of the faith that we place in God. I invite Josh and the worship team to lead us in a closing song. And I, I just encourage you to use this time to... There's a number of things. You've, we've had a couple of challenges. One challenge is, and who in my life could I invite to Easter church service? That's part of it. Another question we're asking is, you know, what is God laying on your heart to do to help to use your resources to be a benefit and a blessing to others? There's more to people than meets the eye. Go slow on your judgments. God can be trusted for justice, ultimately. God's expressed a desire for all to be saved. And so it comes back to our choice. How are we going to do that? Let's, let's stand together and we're going to pray. Father, in heaven, I thank you that Jesus taught in a way that reminds us this life is not all there is. <laughs> in fact, all this life is doing is setting us up for what's to come. And forgive us, Lord, we get so preoccupied with what's here. And yes, you've given us all things to enjoy. And I, I just thank you for the many great blessings you've given us. Thank you for the great joy that, that you allow us to experience at times. I thank you that you're present with us when we're in times of deep grief and sorrow. But Lord, it would be a shame for any of us to reach the end and find that living for ourselves was not the answer. Lord, I feel like I'm just learning this myself. I feel like I'm just, I feel like I'm just at the window looking in. I feel like I haven't even really entered into this yet. And God, I'm asking for you to teach us more and more as a church to really trust you that as we extend care and generosity toward others, that you're going to do the same for us. It's in your nature to do that. So I thank you, God. Would you be stirring this week? Who are we being led to impact in a, in a good way? And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want to give you the opportunity. You may or may not. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Or maybe you did that and it was just a long distant ago thing and it hasn't been real for you. And right now you're saying, I, I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to submit my life to him and follow him. Anybody like that today, if there is, you would just raise your hand and look at me and we'll get a chance to talk after the service. We'll meet back in the prayer room. Anybody like that today, you're saying, I want to give my life to Jesus today. Okay. For the rest of us, there's a, there's a challenge in this today. God, you've given me this. What am I going to do with it? Thank you, Lord. Be, be glorified, Lord, in our midst.
Amen. Josh.